In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these please arise in the mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. <laughs> Question. Did anyone, was anybody else able to open the Dignaga handout? You were able to open it. Was anybody else not able to open it? That happens to me sometimes. I'll download and I, and I get a PDF telling me there's an error. Or something. I tried downloading. It, it doesn't actually tell me anything. It just it acts like it's opening and doesn't go anywhere. So anyway. Uh, I'll, I'll resend it if I can. Yeah, thanks. Hey, good evening. Welcome. Great to see you all. Caitlin, nice to see you. Katie. You what up? <laughs> so tonight is not the last class, by the way. I, I don't know if people somehow thought that, but. So um, in the interim, I managed to find some clarifying information. And uh, one was an article on this text in Wikipedia. Internet is an amazing tool. It's unbelievable. Often, like, uh, you think it's like, oh, the last place to look for stuff. And it just has amazing articles on like the most arcane topics. So this was a good example. I just e emailed it to everybody. And we'll look at it briefly. And the second was that it referred to a, a translation of the text, which is referred to in the book, our text in a very oblique way. And just by seeing the text, it just makes it just those two things make so much difference for me. So if you'll give me a second here, I'm gonna, um, bless you. I'm gonna, uh, I, I took a photo of the text. I have the book and, uh, and I'll send that about. Do you know that on your phone, on your iPhone, you, you know, you take a picture of a text, right? And it comes out like with not very well. But there's a soft, there's different apps. There's a bunch of different apps that'll take uh, photographs of, of texts and then flatten them out and clean them. And it's just sort of amazing. So you'll see one of them in a moment here.
and it, it, it like between the two of them it suddenly makes sense why they're using this and talking about all this stuff that's t like almost in greek for the last section on this topic So, here we go. Okay. Okay, sorry for the delay. And um, Cynthia, I just emailed that handout to you on Dignaga's hand chakra Dhamma again. Not that it's very helpful because I didn't understand what, what the whole thing was about. So I was just like blindly trying to figure it out by mapping the categories. <laughs> that's, that's sort of my default. I don't know what you guys do when you can't understand something, but I just like go through the lists and try to make sense of the list. Anyway, hey two chakra. Can you guys see this on screen? Or Wheel of Reasons is a Sanskrit text and logic written by Dignaga. Interesting dates for him. Concerns the application of his three modes, which are conditions or aspects of the middle term called Hetu or reason for a conclusion. So Hetu is the reason in a syllogism, in a proof statement, and is the reason that yields the conclusion. It's also called Linga. We, we encountered this early on in this section of the book, or mark or sign of a sound argument concerns the application of the three modes in a valid inference within the Indian logical, epistemical tradition, sometimes referred to as, to as Buddhist logical. 
So the three modes, anybody, the three modes, the good mode, the bad mode, and both. What are the three modes? The subject, the forward provision, and the reverse provision. Great. Thank you. Uh, excuse me one second. Hold on. So, pertaining to the subject, the forward provision and the reverse provision. So, what is, uh, when we say pertains to the subject, what does that mean? So, this is the conclusion of this uh, uh, exploration of Buddhist logic. So, this is the main thing, is that understanding the form of a syllogism is, is the most basic part of it. And what makes an ironclad, so to speak, statement, proof statement, syllogism? I'm sorry, Morgan, you were about to explain. Um, the Just the subject part is that the reason applies to the subject. Okay, so, and uh, a syllogism has three parts. It has a subject, which is what the thing we're talking about. It has a predicate, which is what we're trying to prove or demonstrate about that subject. And then it has why. Why do I think that the red jelly beans are the best? Right? What's my reason? My reason is that they uh, taste like strawberry. And uh, what's the forward pervasion? That the predicate is always a, a, there when the uh, reason is there. Yeah. So the forward provision is, is that the uh, predicate, what I'm trying to say about the subject, exists in all instances of the reason. So every red jelly bean is tastes like strawberry, right? What's the reverse pervasion? That none of the reason, none of the predicate appears where the reason does not appear. Right, so none of the predicate, something like that. So it's like, um, No red strawberries. No red ones taste like strawberry. Don't taste like strawberry. Okay. Right. So, so there are no red jelly beans that don't pervade the reason. Right. So, then they use this fancy language of homologous and heterogeneous. Let's start with hetero. Um, no, let's start with homologous. Homologous means what? 
Homologous, homologous. Homo sapiens. Well, maybe say homosexual. That's the easiest thing that, that I think we all know, right? Homosexual means of the same sex, right? Attraction to the same sex. So homo means of the same, of the same class. So homologous means um, entities that are of the same class, also referred to as concordant class, another fancy word for that. Heterogeneous is of different. You know, are you hetero? Are you whatever? Are you homo or hetero? And uh, hetero means of the other class. So, so um, discordant is hetero. So in the forward pervasion, um, we say that the, the reason has to apply to all members of the homologous class, that all members of the class that are of the same type. And then it, the, we reverse it and say it, um, Something like it does not apply to members that are not of that class, which I'm not sure how that would translate to the jelly beans. <laughs> but I mean, so this is the basic structure of uh, this, the syllogism and the 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 first um, mode is called the subject mode or the subject quality. That if you're going to use a reason for a syllogism or uh, a proof statement and let's say let's take something relevant let's say <clears throat> all dharmas are empty of essence empty of swabhava what's the reason that all dharmas are empty of swabhava somebody give me a good reason i'll give you three reasons they're created all dharmas they're are produced created? All dharmas are produced. Thank you. They're created. What's another one? Impermanent. All dharmas are impermanent. Yeah, that's another reason. Okay, good. So those are two reasons why they don't have a swabhava. So um, the subject of the uh, syllogism the proof statement, the hypothesis is dharmas or all dharmas. The predicate is are empty of swabhava, self-nature. And the reason is because all dharmas are created or all dharmas are impermanent. So in this case, um, all, all uh, swabhava have to be, all um, non-swabhavas are created, all, all created phenomena do not have a swabhava. 
would be the forward pervasion, right? Or with our non-swabhava. And all phenomena that do have a swabhava are not created, not impermanent. How's that? So the, the premise is dharmas, the subject is dharmas, the premise is not swabhava, on swabhava, or a swabhava, without swabhava, and the reason is created. So all created phenomena, all uh, non-swabhavas are created. I'm sorry, all created dharmas are without swabhava, is the forward pervasion. All instances of the reason apply to the um, predicate. And then all... All non-created phenomena are without, are all, sorry, <laughs> all swabhavas are non-created. All not, not swabhava, because the predicate was a negative, all not, not swabhava are not created. And in this sense, the key rests on what is a swabhava? Anybody? Morgan, what's what's swabhava in this sense? Essence. And what are the properties of that essence? It's permanent, um, independent, um, and persistent. That's a very permanent. Um, Uncreated. Unitary. And unitary, yeah. So independent is uh, analogous to uncreated. And that's the main uh, misconception that all sentient beings have, is we believe that there's something about things that remains unchanged, that makes them into whole things. And that is... Uh, uh, not brought about by causes and conditions. And so the, um, the, um, the focus then is in this text is on the forward and reverse pervasions and the relation, the possible combinations that these two have.
so this is what all that pot, pot, not pot stuff was about? This? Yeah. Yeah, isn't that weird? Uh, okay, so uh, we're looking at this text, Hetu Chakra. And we went through the little intro. A gentleman named, uh, named Stephen Anaker done a lot of work on Vasubandhu. Uh, translates a text called the Vadavidi of Vasubandhu, 4th century. So it's an earlier than Dignaga text on logic. And he says, um, Vasubandhu's criteria for valid inference schemes, schemes for valid inference are concise and precise. There's nothing essential omitted. Dignaga's wheel of justification sometimes held to be the first complete Indian formulation of what constitutes the validity and invalidity of an argument is in fact nothing of the kind. It is a pedagogic device mapping out in detail what Vasubandhu's criteria also pre already presuppose. So this is an extrapolation, this text of the system of uh, uh, valid inference. Dignaga formulated the three modes, three conditions required for a logical sign, reason, mark, to fulfill in order to establish the valid cognition, the validity really, the uh, pramana's uh, validity of an inference. It should be present in the case or object under consideration, the subject locus. Case here is an alternative term for subject. The re reason has to be present in the case, in the subject. It should be present in a similar case or homologue, homologue, which is in Sanskrit, sa paksha. Sa means similar. Paksha means um, pervasion. And then it should not be present in any dissimilar case or heterologue, vipaksha. When a sign or mark is identified, there are three possibilities. The sign may be present in all, some, or none of the sapakshas. Right, so um, sapaksha again is similar cases. So in the case of all dharmas are a swabhava because they are created, then being created has to uh, applies to all a dharmas, uh, all a swabhavas. as opposed to it applying to some or none. You know, so that's the, that, those are the three possibilities. When we compare a property, so this, the reason is a property. Being created is a property. And it can apply to either all of the predicate. The predicate is what we're asserting. We're asserting that that uh, the, the quality of without swabhava, dharmas are without swabhava. So we could say that created applies to uh, some dharmas, some 
um, without swabhava entities, or it applies to none, or it applies to all. In order to be a valid inference, it has to apply to all. And then the opposite has to apply in all members of the opposite case, of the opposite group. And then we have the wheel of reasons. Based on this, so we have this two, these two terms, uh, forward pervasion, sapaksha is positive pervasion, or fo really forward per pervasion, and then reverse pervasion. Right, and the pervasion part um, refers to that the reason has to pervade the predicate. So in the case of all dharmas are non-swabhava because of being created, um, the quality of non-created applies to the subject, dharmas, and it applies to all, all um, non-swabhava entities, not some, not none. And so then the opposite is entities that are with swabhava are not not created. Think just one not. Thank you. <laughs> I knew that didn't sound right. <laughs> so all um, non non swabhava entities. That's where the double negative comes in. All entities with swabhava are not created. And then based on this, he comes up with these nine possibilities, which is sort of like an I Ching, um, what do they call it, trigrams or something? A, a little bit, it's like the chart at the back, you know, where there's eight possibilities times eight variations, gives you 64 trigrams. And so we have these two possibilities, which somehow yields nine options based on these functional indicators. Plus and equal means all. So where do we have a plus and equal? Let's see. I'm sorry. Equal is not part of it. The plus sign equals means all. So all sapaksha and all vipaksha. Plus and minus equals sum. Um, plus and minus number seven. Number three has plus and minus. Number three has six has plus and minus. And uh, the minus sign equals none. And the, the, the cut to the chase, the ideal correct options are where all sapaksha and no vipakshas occur.
supposedly eight was okay also, but I don't see how it could be some sapakshas and no vipakshas. That is, let's see. Of the nine possibilities, Dignaga asserted that only two are illustrative of sound inference, that is, they meet all three conditions, namely numbers two and eight. Either all sapaksha and no vipaksha, so all of the forward pervasion and none of the uh, reverse, none of the negative of the reverse pervasion, or some of the forward and none of the reverse of the negative of the reverse perversion would fulfill the required conditions. I don't know, uh, you know, it would take like forever to go through all the, the different options and why, but um, anyway, that's what this bizarre, you know, what the box means on, on that chart on page 346 is referring to this. So let's take a, a look. First, let's look at the text. So I, I emailed you the text. Let me see if I can bring it up. Oh, I already did this, sorry. Okay, so. Here's this uh, text, The Wheel of Reasons, a translation of it in a book called Buddhist Formal Logic by a Chinese gentleman. And personally, I've never studied this book because it's full of um, math logical symbols. It has just like pages of formulas with logical symbols in it. <laughs> I, I didn't like that. I don't like that sort of book, but uh, it has a translation of the text. So here we go. Um, homage to Manjushri, Kumarabhuta is the youthful, ever youthful Manjushri. And by the way, you now understand the inner significance of why Manjushri is considered to be ever youthful. It's come, it's come up during this course. Does anyone have a, a, an inkling of what it's about? It relates to this whole issue of subsequent cognition. Remember this division between primary cognition and subsequent cognition? Where subsequent cognition, even though it's perfectly valid, like through the senses, but the second moment of a valid 
uh, a direct valid I consciousness is um, secondary in, in um, impact to the first moment. And so the idea is that wisdom sees everything as if for the first time, experiences everything freshly as the first moment, as that first primary cognition and not subsequent cognition. And that's the idea with Manjushri being the Bodhisattva of wisdom, is that Manjushri represents that quality of seeing every moment of dharmas is really different because nothing existed before. And, to, and that whole idea of there being subsequent cognition is a misnomer because the phenomena has changed in the interim. and You actually can't have a subsequent cognition of the same dharma, right? So that's the idea of Manjushri Kumara Bhutta is the ever useful Manjushri is all about what I just explained. Every, anyway, homage to the omniscient one. So hopefully out of this course, maybe that's the one helpful thing. <laughs> it's understanding why do they say Manjushri is useful <laughs> all the time. Homage to the omniscient one who is the destroyer of the snare of ignorance. I am expounding the determination of the probands <laughs> um, with threefold characteristics. The probands, so probands is the, what is it, the gerund, gerundiv or something of pro, pro, probandus, that which proves. So it's, uh, I think he's trying to say, um, the determination of a proof statement with threefold characteristics, right? Among the three possible cases of presence, absence, and both. Presence is an alternative uh, translation for pervasion or forward pervasion or positive pervasion. Absence is negative or reverse pervasion and both. It uh, completes those two modes of the probands in the probandum. Okay, so probands is not an entire proof statement. It's the reason. So in the stanza before, I expand the determination of the reason with threefold characteristics. Those are the three modes of the reason. Among the three possible cases of the reason of the probands in the probandum, the probandum is the full proof statement. Only the case of its presence is valid, while its absence is not. Uh, so he's talking about the, the first mode. Is, is the reason present in the subject, or is it absent, or is it both? Both is not a good one. The case of both is inconclusive. It is therefore not valid either. Um, the presence, absence, and both of the probands in similar instances. Okay, so now he's going through the pervasions. Combined with those in dissimilar instances, there are three combinations in each of three, three possibilities. The top and the bottom. So suddenly he's talking about a, a top and a bottom reading, meaning of a chart. And... Uh, the top and bottom are valid, the two sides are contradictory, the four corners are inconclusive through being too broad, and the center is inconclusive through being too narrow. So in order to like figure out exactly the proper relationship between the reason 
and the uh, subject and the predicate, he's mapped out these nine possibilities, some being too broad, some being too narrow in the way that they're, they relate to each other, and then two being just right. And then he lists all these qualities, noble, produce, whatever. These are used to prove the properties of being. And um, it's hard to figure out, like, noble, produced, impermanent. Um, why does he have produced again in the second statement? And audible, audible only applies to sound. There's two types of sound, right? We learned. What are the two types of sound? Produced by humans and not? Right, so produced by human effort, so effort made and not. Impermanent, effort made, and incorporeal are used to prove the properties of being, which are permanent, impermanent. This is still incomprehensible to me. This, <laughs> When two tops or bottoms meet, the probands is valid. When two corresponding sides meet, it's contradictory. When corresponding corners meet, it is inconclusive through being too broad, et cetera, et cetera. So he's, he's mapping out these nine options. Accordingly, we have nine sets of examples. Space, pot, <laughs> pot, space, pot, lightning, space, space, pot, space, pot, space, pot, lightning. It's <laughs> very weird. And that's the end. The above concerns the determined probands only as regard the doubtful one. There is also nine com combinations of presence, absence, and both. For that, see my other text. <laughs> the Treatise on the Wheel of Reasons by Acharya Dignaga. Okay, so then uh, in this book, here's mapping out the nine in the diagram. Oh, so it's all about sound. Sound is permanent, is one option. It's impermanent, it's produced by effort. It's noble, it's produced, it's impermanent. Space, we switch to space and pots. Pot, space. I don't know, you got me. Anyway, here's the diagram. Here's another version of the diagram. Except it doesn't have, it doesn't really have nine options. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Yeah, I don't know why it has more options. Anyway, it's not all that in helpful nor is it all that interesting. Um, let's take a look at the chart, though, on page 346 and see if we can make heads or tails of that. Inferential evidence in Dignanga's drum of a wheel of reasons. So in the upper left, we have actual inconclusive. And the two... In the four corners, we have actual inconclusive options, one, three, seven, and nine. In the middle, top, and bottom, we have correct evidence. And then in the middle row, we have contradictory evidence on the left and right, and uncommon inconclusive. 
Uncommon in this context usually means unique, right? So in the upper left hand, sound is permanent because it is an object of knowledge. So a concordant example is um, why is why is space a concordant example of this uh, hypothesis of this proof statement? Because it's similar of in being permanent. Thank you. Yeah, so it's concordant. Um, space space is permanent. And it's an object of knowledge, right? So not all objects of knowledge are one or the other. That's the problem with the reason, right? Object of knowledge, you know, in this syllogism, sound is permanent because it's an object of knowledge. The subject is sound, the predicate is permanent, and the reason given is because it's an object of knowledge. Now, does, um, are all objects of knowledge, are all uh, permanent phenomena objects of knowledge, is the forward pervasion. Are all permanent phenomena objects of knowledge? Permanent phenomena are, let's say, space, cessations, um, nirvana. Right. Are those I guess the question knowledge? is: yes. there may be objects of knowledge, but not to ordinary people. Not all to ordinary people. No, they they don't have that influence. Inf uh, that nuance here of the perceptible, non-perceptible sort of thing. But basically, um, all permanent phenomena are objects of knowledge um, because they're phenomena. If 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 there are things like a horse's a hare's horn, that's a non-existent. It's not a permanent phenomena. It's not a phenomena in this scheme, right? We have we have permanent phenomena, and then we have non-phenomena. Basically, by definition, phenomena are objects of knowledge. Right. All right? phenomena are objects of knowledge. Regardless of that's their right. permanent or non-permanent. Thank you. Right? Going back to that initial chart, that's synonymous, right? Phenomena are objects of knowledge or knowables, right? And so permanent phenomena are a subset of um, objects of knowledge. And so then uh, the, the forward provision works. All permanent phenomena are objects of knowledge. But then the reverse provision is are... Um, Are all impermanent phenomena not objects of knowledge? They're also objects of knowledge. Yeah. So it fails the reverse provision. The reverse provision should be no objects of knowledge are impermanent, reversing the reason into the predicate. No objects of knowledge are impermanent. 
no, none of the, the discordant class of the reason are applied to the discordant class of the predicate. Let's look at um, number three. The sound of a conch is arisen from effort because it's impermanent. So, um, are, are all conch sounds impermanent? Yes. But are, are um, non-permanent, are, are all permanent phenomena not conch? <laughs> what's, the, what's the reverse probation, Morgan? Are all, um, are all impermanent sounds? Uh, wait, oh, arisen from effort. Are Sorry. all permanent things arisen from effort? Isn't it? Right. Yeah. The sound of a conch is the subject. The predicate is arisen from effort because it is impermanent. So the forward provision is that all phenomena arisen from effort are impermanent. And the reverse is that no permanent phenomena are not arisen from effort. But um, the concordant example is a pot. So the, the problem is that not not everything impermanent is arisen from effort, right? Lightning and space are examples of phenomena that are impermanent, but not arisen from effort. Is that okay? Yes. Morgan, my uh, logic expert is crossing his eyebrows. His, no, his no, no, eyebrows that, are that furrowed. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's look at seven. <clears throat> let's look at seven. The sound of a conch is not arisen from effort because it's impermanent. <laughs> so that's the opposite. Um, The concordant class is lightning and space are not arisen from effort, but they are uh, impermanent. And the discordant one is a pot. So the sound space of is impermanent. Uh, concordant examples. I'm sorry. Those those are examples of phenomena not arisen from effort. One's uh, that's, not. Yeah, that's the predicate. So, so the concordant examples are examples of the predicate, right? So in the first one, sound is permanent because it's an object of, of knowledge. The concordant example is space. Sound um, is permanent. It's an example of being permanent. And so examples of the predicate, the sound of a conch is arisen from effort. A pot has arisen from effort in number three. In number seven, lightning and space are not arisen from effort. Um, and uh, they are impermanent, but they're not a sound of a conch. So 
actual inconclusive. A part is a is a a part is arisen from effort and it is impermanent. The sound of a pot. <laughs> and number nine, the sound of a conch is permanent because it's not a tangible object. So um, tangible object does not apply to the sound of a conch, right? So the reason does not apply to the subject. In number seven, the reason, because it is impermanent, um, does not apply to all cases of not arisen from effort. Phenomena that are not arisen from effort are natural sounds and um, not all natural sounds, not all um, what is it? Non-natural sounds are not <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to skip that one. Too many double negatives. <laughs> I, I, I do have one simple question. The definition of a tangible object is what? In tangible, does that, does tangible mean literally the touch phenomena, a touch sense, or could it be any sense? Uh, you know, the tangible is not the same as perceptible. Yeah, T tangible means something that you can touch in this literally case. Literally with, with the... Yeah. the Yes, they're talking about the objects of the senses, yeah. But but specifically the touch sense, not any sense. Correct. Right, okay. Okay, so now let's look at four and six. The sound of a conch is permanent because it's produced. So um, produced applies to the subject. The reason produced applies to the subject, sound of a conch. But... Um, it does not apply to the predicate. And then uh, six, the sound of a conch is permanent because it's arisen from effort. The, the reason arisen from effort does apply to the subject, but the reason does not apply to the predicate. So the forward provision is not valid. Um, in four, the sound of a conch is permanent because it's produced. How does that differ from six? Six, the sound of a conch is permanent because it's produced. The sound of a conch is permanent because it's arisen from effort. It's pretty similar. Those are basically quite similar. I wonder in what way that they distinguish the two of them. Uh, well, the, the examples, they have one extra example in six. Oh, I think... Oh, they, oh, oh, because... Oh, oh, no, no, sorry. Go ahead. I think the, the, the uh, distinction is that produced applies to a large, the largest group of phenomena. 
and arisen from effort only applies to sounds. The arisen from effort in this case is a type of sound. Oh, they're talking narrowly about a the two types of sound, yeah, that arisen from yeah. So this should really say the sound of a conch is permanent because it's a sound arisen from effort. I think. Yeah. I think that's what's getting at. Uh, so that okay. is how those two differ. Now let's look at five in the middle. Sound is permanent because it's audible. So um, audible applies to sound, obviously. Audible does not apply to permanent. So the forward pervasion is not correct. What? Um, How does that differ from the other two? It's audible. All sounds are audible by definition, right? So in in four, you have sound compared to all phenomena that are produced. So there's um, one group within a much larger group. And then sound is being compared to what's audible. And those are the same. Those are equivalent, right, groups. So they're, they're using examples that involve different sets, different groups. And then six is sound of a conch and arisen from effort is comparing it to one subset of the uh, of all sounds so um whatever okay let's look at uh let's look at the top again and see if we can make sense of that sound is permanent because it's an object of knowledge so there's the largest class right objects of knowledge sound is impermanent because it's produced so those are just synonymous. The sound of a conch is arisen from effort because it is impermanent. So that's the smallest class. The sound of a conch is a type of sound that's arisen from effort. But the reason, uh, that's not a valid reason for it being impermanent. It should be the other way around, right? It's impermanent because it's uh, arisen from effort. Although in this case, it's a type of sound and it doesn't really prove arisen from effort because you, you um, if arisen from effort implied impermanent, then not arisen from effort would have to imply permanent and it doesn't. The other type of sound is also impermanent, right? So then the bottom, uh, Let's do, do we do the bottom row? The sound of a conch is not arisen from effort because it's impermanent. So that's the... That's the same as three. It's, it's like the opposite of three. Oh, I'm sorry, the not. Oh, God. Yeah, three is the sound of a conch is arisen from effort, and seven is the sound of a conch is not arisen from effort. And then eight is eight. The sound of a conch is impermanent because it's arisen from effort. Is impermanent because it's arisen from effort. All phenomena that are arisen from effort are impermanent. All permanent phenomena are not arisen from effort. Hmm. Why do they accept eight? And that's why eight have that weird sum factor in the 
article we just looked at, the sound of a conch is permanent because it's not a tangible object, it's just totally off. Okay. Anyway, let's do a final, uh, let's do a little review of last week's reading using uh, the other handout I handed out. Let's see. Okay, so categories of evidence used in a court of law to prove that there is no self. There's correct evidence, and then there's incorrect, fallacious, inferential evidence. And evidence is uh, infer used in inference. Correct evidence in general is of three types, effect, uh, um, where you we are um, deriving the reason from the effect. We are de de deriving the cause rather from the effect. Right? We're uh, is that de deductive? We're we're identifying the cause of something by its effect is one type of correct evidence. We're identifying the really the function of something by virtue of its nature and then we're we're determining the absence of something uh, by virtue of its non of it being non-perceived uh, from the point of view of the predicate of the probandum which is what is to be proved the evidence can be used in a in a negative way it can negate the predicate, or it can affirm the predicate. The predicate is uh, what we're trying to prove about the subject. So you can either try uh, try to prove something about that the subject is is X, or that the subject is not X. Correct evidence from the point of a, of a proof. Uh, proving the expression or proving the thing itself. Proving the expression, I was I'm a little bit weak on. Does anybody remember what proving the expression had to do with? Is that the predicate? Just is it that simple that one is the proving the subject or proving the predicate versus proving the subject? It maybe? seems like the simplest guess I can make. <laughs> right. Not not to say it's from memory of, of what it said. It's just that's seems like the expression could refer to the probandum and the thing itself could refer to the subject. I don't know. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll have to research that for next class. Okay. 
Cynthia, thank you for taking that on for next class. <laughs> um, correct evidence from the point of view of the thesis. The thesis is the entire statement, right? And it always has to be based on empirical fact, not popular conventions and not trustworthy testimony. Correct evidence from the point of view of the homologous cases from similar cases is that it's present in the set of similar cases or it's present as a subset of the set of similar cases. Either of these two is acceptable. acceptable. <laughs> um, and that's evidence. basically the difference between number two and number eight, is that right? I think so. Thank you. Yeah. In terms of like um, the full set or a part of the set of similar cases. That's right. Thank you. Uh, uh, this whole process is either for oneself or others. Types of correct evidence. There's effect evidence, nature evidence, and non-perception. We just went through that. Those are the three types of correct evidence. And then there's five types of correct effect and evidence. An effect that proves the actual cause or an effect that pr proves the preceding cause, like the uh, one cause removed, you know, so where you have a sequence of uh, interactions. An effect proving the general cause is sort of like proving the principle of a situation. So how things operate in principle and effect proving a particular cause is a specific instance and then an effect proving the causes attributes the the uh, different characteristics of the cause nature um, there's two types one that involves qualification like in certain circumstances x um, is y because of Z and it's, and uh, and then there's some types of nature evidence that are free of qualification, meaning in all instances, X is always Y because of Z. And then non-perception, there's uh, that which is imperceptible, like we don't see ghosts. And the fact that uh, we can't say there's not a ghost in the room just because I don't see ghosts, because I'm not capable of seeing ghosts. And then uh, see uh, non-perception of what is perceptible to me. And uh, related perceptible, correct evidence, and then contradictory. So. evidence based on uh, the non-perception of something that we should perceive that is related as a cause to the predicate or it pervades the uh, the set of um, instances described something like that uh, the nature, <clears throat> it, it seems basically we're using evident, uh, effect and nature within non-perception of the perceptible.
if we if we don't see something that should have had a certain effect if we don't see a certain effect then we can conclude that the, the cause of that effect did not exist if we don't see a particular cause then we can conclude that the effect does not exist non-perception perception of a cause implies the non-existence of the result non-perception of the result implies the non-perception of the cause and then non-perception of the function of something that functions in a certain way by its nature such as fire being hot and burning implies uh, uh, supports the conclusion that fire is not present and then in the case of uh, something being contrary, let's say contradictory perceptible evidence. So uh, um, not perceiving something that is contradictory to um, a situation. And this had to do with like, you don't see um, fire and frozen, water in the same place those are contradictory perceptible evidence contradictory phenomena and what's the difference between it then those phenomena being contrary to each other and mutually exclusive uh, mutually exclusive is like about opposites like uh, light and dark are just uh, mutually exclusive where there's light there's no dark so if you don't perceive darkness then uh, there is no darkness there's light there and uh, contrary is the fire and the ice where two phenomena are contrary phenomena and then there's the subdivisions of that then there's other types of correct evidence in terms of how the proof functions in terms of the expression and thing itself which we saw up above, and uh, um, Cynthia is going to report back to us on that, and then correct evidence on the basis of trustworthy testimony. So there's certain cases, like for the uh, working of karma, that we're not able to determine uh, by virtue of the usual other means of inference. Um, and the way that we evaluate those trustworthy i.e buddhist scriptural statements about hidden uh, extremely hidden phenomena is that for one the statement about the situation must not be refuted by direct valid cognition valid direct perception and uh, it must not be refuted by valid inference based upon empirical fact which is all of our inferential activity has to be based on empirical fact and it's not invalidated by contradiction involving earlier and later scriptural assertions and that's a really interesting one because you have to compare the statement at hand to other statements by the buddha about the same topic and if he says something different in different situations then it's completely inconclusive fallacious inferential evidence has three main types contradictory 
or inconclusive or unestablished. So contradictory is um, you're using uh, reasoning, a reason that's contradictory to the situation, or you're using a reason that's not conclusive. It's not, uh, it doesn't apply to all cases. Or you're using a, a evidence that is unestablished, that we don't both agree upon as being relevant, either to the situation or the subject at hand. Uh, it's unestablished in relation to, to fact of the situation, or it's unestablished in relation to the mind, such as we have doubts about this or that. And lastly, it's unestablished in relation to the opponent in the debate where you're, you're trying to talk to somebody about the nature of the mind, for example, and that person does not accept that there is a mind. All they accept is the brain. And so it's hard to have conclusive uh, inferential statements about the mind when they don't accept it. It's unestablished. Eric is not here, so we can't continue to um, correct his aberrant behavior that he exhibited last week. No, Neil. No, it was Neil. Neil is not here, right? What it, what was it that Neil was asserting last week? Well, I guess you could say he was asserting the self as a process. Is that yeah, he uh, he started off saying that uh, he didn't quite get the selflessness that there is some sort of a. Uh, self of some sort, right? And uh, I, th I think he was soundly defeated. Or is that a <laughs> a one-sided report? What was the, what was the logic that um, that uh, proves that there is no self? Do you mean specifically from last week or in general, like one and many and blah, blah, blah? In general, yeah. No. You know, it's funny. So, oh, so, so this is good. Yeah, uh, let's, let's do this instead. So I think all of us have been through Madhyamaka where we've looked at the different reasonings for emptiness, right? Yeah, let's connect the dots. This is good. It's like, why did we go through studying all of this? bizarre categories and stuff, right? The idea is to bring it back to understanding selflessness and, and emptiness, shanyuta and anatman. And um, we, <clears throat> we learn in the Madhyamaka system that there are five types of reasons. Instead of three reasons of effect, nature, and non-perception, they use, they say there's five arguments. So the, 
this the the term that they use arguments is not exactly the same as the three as the term used for the three types of reasons three types of reasons being effect nature and non-perception and so in the madhyamaka system the five arguments that are used for proving the emptiness of phenomena are first there's uh, the, the so-called Vajra slippers, slivers argument. Anyone recall the Vajra slivers argument? Somebody's muted. Uh, Mary, either Cynthia or Mary Beth. It's the dot. It's the. Is that the diamond one? Yeah, the diamond splinters. That's right. He, he, um, she wears diamonds on the soles of her shoes. But I don't know what it means. Just that it, it's it's diamonds. You you can't cut it. Yeah. Is it's it so the same fun. one as like you you just you can always cut it. You can keep cutting it and cutting it. That is it's more that sense. Yeah, that it's like it's uh, so sharp that you're cutting things in very precise, uh, in a very precise way. You're analyzing phenomena in a very precise way. Anyone else, Cynthia, the uh, Vajra slivers, diamond slivers argument? I have to admit, I can't come up with the, uh, how do At I- At the moment, it? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, so, uh, my mind the, is brain dead. <laughs> After after that ninefold uh, chart, indeed, yes. <laughs> after you got number eight, that was good. <laughs> um, so the first one is the Vajra slivers. Is that uh, phenomena are are not produced by causes because cause and effect never meet. Mm. Right. That's the first one is, is causation. I suppose the mnemonic for that could be that there's a sliver between the cause and the effect that yeah, causes that's to right. never meet. <laughs> that's right. Put a sliver, a diamond sliver in between cause and effect. Because if the effect exists, in order for cause and effect to uh, have function as a cause, it has to have the uh, some impact on the effect, right? And in order for one phenomena to have an impact on a, another phenomena, they have to meet, <laughs> which means they have to exist at the same time. And if the effect exists at the time when the cause is causing, then the cause is not actually causing because the effect is there already. So the cause becomes redundant in the case of the effect being there already. And in the case where the effect is uh, uh, arises at a different moment, how can the cause have any impact on the effect because the cause no longer exists at the time of the effect? So cause and effect never meet. So that would be a reasoning using which type of uh, evidence of the three types of evidence of effect, nature, and non-perception. That's a pretty easy one. Effect. Effect. <laughs> Obviously, it's effect, no. right? Yeah. So then, uh, 
Uh, in some cases, there's four reasons or four arguments for emptiness. In some, there's five. In the cases where there's five, there's this odd one that's that's often listed second. That is, um, oh, let me let me remember these guys. Oh, sorry. Okay. Number two. <laughs> Number two focuses on the result. And it goes like this. If the result... Um, if the result newly exists in the second moment and does not exist in the first moment, then you were asserting that something came out of nothing. Whereas if you say that the result comes out of something that exists in the, in the moment before, then the result already exists and it would not be produced again. So how does the result arise? If it arises based on it being present in the moment of its arising, it doesn't make sense because it would already be arisen and so it wouldn't need to arise again. Whereas if the result arises uh, without having been existing in the moment before, then you're saying that something newly arises out of thin air. It's pretty much similar to the Vajra slivers. It's sort of looking at the other side of the equation. So that's number two, is looking at results. And then number three is, um, sort of combines those together and says, uh, one, one cause does not produce one effect, which was number the first reason. One result does not arise from one cause was the second reason. And then three, is the, so the third reason has sort of four parts to it. And the third part is that many causes don't produce many results. I screwed it up. It's actually the the four the four parts of number three are one cause does not produce one result. We just refuted that with one and two. And the second one is many causes don't produce many results because you're just using the same. Uh, you're just saying, well, if it didn't work, I'll do I'll do it. Uh, I'll do it a lot. <laughs> I'll do ten times of it. But, but uh, if one time, if one activity of trying to produce something doesn't yield uh, validity, then 10 times that doesn't. So many causes don't produce many results. Many causes don't produce one result. And many, uh, one cause does not produce many results. So it's going through that scheme. And that's sometimes omitted. And then there's given only four 
reasons. The third one is one in many, which Cynthia just mentioned. What is the idea of one in many? That you can never actually identify a single thing. And so then the, it's sort of the impossibility of there being multiple things because you can't ever identify a single thing. And basically everything we try to look at has multiple parts. But since it, then each one of those you break down and break down and you can never actually find a thing. I don't know if that's the best way to define it, but. Yeah, that's basically that. That, that basically every Again. phenomena is made up of infinitous uh, parts odd, can be broken down into parts ad infinitum. And by saying, well, if I have a lot of those, then somehow they'll magically work, it does not work. And then the fourth and final and supposed king of reasons interdependence. is interdependence. And why is, what is the reasoning involved? So um, the first one was, is, and the second of the four reasons, let's say, are effect reasons, right? One in many is obviously a nature reason. The nature of phenomena is that they're compounded. And then uh, the third one of uh, the, the uh, non-perception is, is sort of pervades all the reasons in a in a um, in a certain way, but let's see. The last of the Madhyamakan reasons is interdependent. All phenomena are interdependently arisen, and why does that prove their lack of? Uh, why does that prove they're they're empty? They're not singular. It proves that they're not singular because they are produced as um, anything produced has parts, right? Yeah. So interdependently. Or I'm arisen. sorry, not singular, but they're not they're they're not independent. Well, that's the that's the reason interdependence. And what are the what are the two what are the types of interdependence? Basically, is what I'm going for. The Things types. are inter yeah, there's three ways that things are interdependent that are that are good to remember that we've been through a couple of times here and there, sort of obscure the different types of interdependence. Is it like cause and effect? Yeah, they're, they're, they are uh, dependent upon causes. All phenomena are dependent upon causes and conditions is one type of dependency. And that's called and temporal. And then composition. Uh, well, well, there was this term, modus or parts. There was some odd term for that. But anyway, yes, the phenomena are dependent upon their parts. A table on the chair on the top and so forth. So that's the second type of dependence. 
or interdependence. And then the third type of dependence or interdependence is <laughs> Sorry, phenomena are are conceptually dependent. I was going to say it's dependent on our minds, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. I thought that was a little too far fetched, but dependent upon the conceptually dependent upon the basis of designation, upon their basis of designation. That phenomena are conceptually dependent upon their basis of designation. So trees or a tree is a conceptual phenomena that's dependent upon the trunk and the branches and the leaves. And the trunk is a conceptual phenomena that's based upon the various parts of the trunk and so forth. Ad infinitum, again, but conceptually dependent upon the basis of designation. Well, I, actually, I'm, I'm just wondering that is the point of that more about the fact that it's conceptually designated by a being of some kind, um, or is it the point that more similar to the second one that, you know, because the basis of designation, you, you were referring to like the trunk or this or that, are these various parts, which seems like it's kind of like the number two. So the basis of designation is different than being dependent on the parts? Yeah, why is it different? <clears throat> it's different because... I mean, I could see that because somebody, some entity has concluded something about the set of parts and called it something, which is the basis of designation. I mean, but again, that, that's why I'm wondering, it's, it's, this third one is more about the fact that there's some being projecting this identity on something it, it feels like it's it's applied it's like the first two apply to um, phenomena of matter and mind when we look at the dharmas and the last one of conceptual designation applies to non-associated phenomena If that makes any sense, I don't know. We'll have I'll have to refresh my memory on those for next week. And then what was it? Uh, Evidence of, uh, by expression or something. What was that? Okay, those are the two things to look into. Yeah, it was number three, the proving by expression versus proving by the object, I think, or something like that. Yeah, something like that, the thing itself. Yeah. So anyway, that concludes this, this section of our 
study of the preparatory topics in the world of the Shedra. This is obviously the hardest one, both in terms of uh, the uh, level of excitement <laughs> that one might have for uh, understanding this material, I, the, the boredom of it, and also the complexity of it. Uh, but this is this plus the classifications of mind together form the basis for the topic of uh, valid cognition, the study of valid cognition as presented in the Shedra by the text by Dharmakirti called the Commentary on Valid Cognition. And so that leaves, uh, there's, there's basically five preparatory texts. There's the collected topics, there's Dudra, there's the classifications of mind as low rick. There's the classifications of reasons, which is tarik, T-A-R-I-K, uh, it's basically my name, Derek, because <laughs> the T is pronounced as a D, Derek. And then there's um, uh, tenets is the next one and then there's uh, grounds and paths is the fifth one grounds and paths is a little uh, summary of the material in the text the ornament of higher realization Samaya alamkara which goes through the different aspects of the different paths in buddhism the shravaka pratyeka and bodhisattva yana paths and uh, we uh, we don't really uh, I, I don't think we need to go through that material because it's uh, the <clears throat> applicable part the relevant part meaning the paths of one and two we've gone through in other contexts and situations and then <clears throat> the paths from uh, number three bless you from the third path of seeing onward or uh, a little bit beyond our scope at this point. So the remaining one is tenets, and we'll go through the tenets in the fall. I'm scoping out which texts, and I'll get back to you for which texts to use on the tenets. And the, the tenets, tenets is way more fun than what we just went through, <laughs> for one. And it brings together the prior three topics. <clears throat> the collected topics, all the dharmas, it brings together the classifications of mental states and the different types of cognition. And then it uh, uh, it brings in reasoning for how each different tenant system proves its um, version of reality. And it basically goes ground path and fruition. What are the ground, the ground being? What are the established bases? What is what does this tenant system hold as being uh, true about the world about us and the perceivers? It's basically going through the objective world, the subjective world, and how they interrelate. What is what is the different versions of those through the four tenant schools, which are Vibhashaka, Atomist, Sautrantika, or reasoning? Chittamatra mind only and Madhyamaka is uh, the middle wayers. And uh, 
And then we'll dive into Chandra Kirti's uh, introduction to the Middle Way for the 20th anniversary of the Rime Shedra. Um, but now, from from the tonight onward through the end of this course, which is somewhere in July, we get to study meditation. <laughs> what a relief! <laughs> and uh, I think it's a nice overview and uh, a nice presentation of Shamatha Vipassana. A nice little take on that. Um, so I think it'll be infinitely more enjoyable and uh, and seemingly beneficial. There's seeming valid cognition and actual valid cognition. So it's seemingly beneficial. Is it actually beneficial? Uh, if we put it into practice, then then potentially. But you never know that when when you die. You might just need to know uh, what the imperceptible logical framework is that uses non-perception in order to remember that you died. Anyway, let's uh, dedicate the merits. Go about our more important business. Any, any sorry, any final comments on uh, logic, the system of logic? It's a little bit of a shame that they didn't sort of bring home the non-perception, non-observation evidence and, and sort of go through it in terms of how it supports the understanding of emptiness. But I, th I guess they'll do that later in this series. Any other comments? By this merit, may all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. So you've done it. You've been through Dudra, Loric, and Tariq to some extent. You know how many people in the Buddhist world have done that? So few people. <laughs> and survived. <laughs> and survived, yeah, yeah. Thank you, everyone. Great to see you. Have a good evening. Bye, Derek. Thanks. Bye. Emily, I'll be right back, okay? Sounds good.